So one thing you guys are all experiencing now is how it is that you live as a poor, broke college student who still needs to eat food, wear clothes, and get places. Um, and as you spend more time in college, you'll realize it's a lot like learning how to live in a jungle. You kind of learn the secrets of the trade. You know these secret spots you can go to to always get some grub. And you find these like cheat codes that buy you another month to two months of never having to go to the store. My biggest cheat code, and I'm sharing that all with you, are the job fairs at the University of Montana. Okay? How many of you have been to a job fair here? Okay, a few of you. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with the job fair, uh, this is what happens. Businesses come in with a whole bunch of free stuff and they try to recruit you. And you, like, it's not just pens we're talking about here. We're talking about candy and highlighters and reading lights and flashlights and can openers and tire pumps and golf balls. These are all things I've gotten. Frisbees, watches, wristbands, measuring tapes, rulers, calculators, um, I can't remember, there's, there's something that was, there's like a, it was like a Game Boy game with like a little screen that you would have gotten like the 90s. Um, they had one of those and, and it's all these things that you don't really think you need, but you do need it. You do need it. And the, so the last job for I went to is probably seven years ago. I put together a bookshelf last year with a screwdriver I got at the job fair, okay? It had community medical center written on it, and it's got like replaceable heads. The best thing I ever got at the job fair was a pizza cutter. Because I was lived in a house with a bunch of guys, and we, no guy ever thinks like, oh, well, I'm at the store, I should pick up a pizza cutter. Because there are knives, and you could just cut pizza with knives, or you tear it with your hands like a barbarian. Um, and so I got a pizza cutter that I had for four years, and I bequeathed it to the house when I left. Um, and there's a lot of great things to go there. So the secret is knowing about this. Consider yourselves enlightened. But there's also one important thing. As the vast amount, amount um, as most of the things there are excellent, and you just grab as many as you can and you haul. Um, the, the other secret is knowing which ones not to get. And there's two reasons why you would refuse free things um, at the job fair. The first is that sometimes there's a catch. And you could all see the people who are at the booze where it's a catch because they're lurking like lions and lionesses, like waiting for you to get close and reach for a cup. And then you can't get out. It's a sales pitch. It's an internship. It's a sign up here. It's a give me your email. And you never get those three minutes of your life back. Life's too short to spend three minutes with somebody from Bose. Um, and so that's the first thing is that there's a catch. And then the second thing is sometimes I don't know who the marketing directors are at these places, but sometimes they make things that are just flat out worthless, okay? I remember one time, I thought I was getting the coolest thing, and it was a highlighter, that it was flat, and it was shaped like this, with a different color highlighting point on each end. You, it was impossible, it was engineered for anything except for highlighting. It worked better as a Frisbee, and so I had it on my desk for three years, and I never used it before I finally threw it away. And as we've been going through this book of Romans, we've seen the gospel called the free gift as this gift that God is trying to give away. And the first place we see this used is Romans 3, 23 through 24, where Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
And Paul today is going to use that language as, as uh, Swaggy J just read to us, this free gift that God is giving to us. But if the gospel is a free gift, freely given, why is it that some people don't take it? Why is it that there's not a rush like Black Friday on our church doors every Sunday to get in and to seize some more of this free gospel? Why do people refuse it? And as I was looking at this passage today and seeing the points Paul was making, I realized um, oftentimes people reject the gospel for the same reason we learn to reject goodies at job fairs. It's because their eyes are so blind and their hearts are so dead that they see the gospel as something that comes with a catch. Well, if I were to believe this, there goes my life. Can't have any fun, can't have any friends, can't have any joy. I have to sit through God's lifelong sales pitch. And so some people see the gospel as a catch or other people view the gospel as worthless, right? I don't need to become a better person. I'm pretty good. Life's going great. Haven't killed anybody. Don't get drunk too often. I don't need this salvation they talk about. They talk about this need for salvation. They talk about needing a savior. I, I feel peaceful. I feel at rest. I don't need it. I don't need the gospel in the same way. I don't need a flat, triangular-shaped highlighter. However, tonight in this passage, Paul is going to address both of those reasons head on. And tonight's passage actually builds on and defines what Dave shared with us last week. Last week, Dave spoke to us, um, and and we know it's connected because it begins with, if you're looking at your ESV, the first word it uses is, therefore. And actually, it's better translated as, on account of this. And so it's really building off of what Dave talked about. And last week we saw that there was this trial, there was this suffering, there were these hardships that come in the life of a Christian. And the hope for the Christian to get through that, Paul builds to it. He says it's sealed in you through the Holy Spirit, and then he goes to expound this beautiful doxology. He says there's this this hope that you see. He summarizes that in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, more than that, we also rejoice Despite the trials, despite the hardships, despite the suffering that come to us, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so the hope for us when we experience hard times, if you're a Christian, the hope for hardships, the hope for difficulties, the hope for sadness and tragedy, Paul is saying it's the reality and the celebration of being reconciled. And so what Paul's going to do tonight, he's going to take this word reconciled and this hope of the gospel, and he's going to say, why is this something that increases your security? Why is this something that gives you stability in the times where it's hard? Why is this something that compels your action and your attention? And here's what we're going to see tonight. Tonight we're going to see that the free gift of the gospel is of ultimate assurance. It's the most encouraging. It's the most beneficial. It's the most joy-producing when we realize three things. We realize that Christ is needed, that Christ is distinct, and that Christ is all-surpassing. So before we get into that, let's pray for God to be gracious and kind to us tonight. So Lord, uh, we come before you as a people who are hungry. Um, We come before you as beggars to the God who has all things at his disposal. And we ask for grace tonight as we look at your word. Um, we ask that you um, give us wisdom through the words of Paul, through your Holy Spirit. Um, we pray that it encounters us richly tonight, that by the, the um, effective and powerful nature that Paul talks about um, and uses this forceful language of the gospel in this text, that that will encounter us and it will destroy any presuppositions we have against the gospel 
But for the majority of us in here, we pray that it destroys any small or insignificant view of the gospel we have. We pray that by your grace, we get a picture of Jesus and a picture of the gospel, which is big enough to compel us to live a life according to faith, the life that Paul is pleading with us for, the life that Jesus has purchased us for. And so we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I just want to stop here before we uh, really dive in, and I want to talk a little bit about that word reconciliation that Paul used here. Paul really likes to use this word. He uses it um, a lot in 2 Corinthians. He uses it a lot in Romans. And it's really, I think, one of the more important words to understand when we begin to understand what the gospel does in our life. And see, reconciliation, it carries with it this idea of restoring something which is broken. So the assumption is that something was once not broken. And this is important for us to understand because it really gets at the heart of the gospel. Because oftentimes, culture sees religion as like this buffet. Where we come in hungry, we find one that suits us, one that fits around our schedule, one that meshes with our worldview, one that gives us the most comfort, and we get to choose it. It's, we want something more, we want something unique, and so we go and we find something that matches up. It's like trying to find the one. Right? You see the, the chick flicks in these TV shows, How I Met Your Mother, Ted's Looking for the One. Right, Someone who he's never had before, but he's going out of his way to find again. However, that's not Christianity. The word reconciliation helps us know that because reconciliation is a callback to where it all started. Humans were made, the original design of humanity was to be in right relationship with God, and sin broke that relationship. Therefore, Christianity isn't a call to lose your humanity. It's not that we're human. We find Christianity and we become something other than human. Christianity is a backwards call to find your true humanity in Jesus. It's calling us back. Jesus restores what is broken. He's bringing us back to where we should be. In order to fully communicate the hope of reconciliation, Paul is going way back to the beginning. He's going all the way back, and this is how he begins to establish his first point tonight, the first point that Christ is needed. And when it comes to finding security and endurance in the value of the gospel, we must be aware of our need for Christ. We need to see the need of Jesus. And this is why Paul begins this passage with verses 12 and 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So Paul is talking about two things here in this book. And this is actually the first time he's specifically mentioning these two things. But these have been undergirding the whole first four chapters of Romans. And here he's talking about Adam and Adam's original sin. And Adam, if you guys have grown up in the church or vacation Bible school or familiar with the gospel story, Adam was the real created first man of the Bible. It was Adam and Eve that God created. And in Genesis 3, he chose Genesis 1 and 2. We see this creation account and everything's good. God saw his creation. It was great. Adam and Eve are like roaming around on ligers and stuff like that. They have perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and a world that is meant for their pleasure. But then Genesis 3 came and Adam chose to disobey God because he saw 
God's rule as that worthless trinket at the job fair. He said, I don't really need that. I don't think this is really going to add to my life. I think I could find something better than a square highlighter. And so he chose to reject God's word and obey Satan's word because he saw that as a greater value to his life. He rejected God's good word, and the result of that was the first sin. And the unfortunate thing about sin, it's not just spiritual. We often tend to think that sin only imply, is a word that only implies to people who are religious, right? Because it's something that impacts our spirituality. But sin is also physical. Look back at the progression that Paul gave us in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The result of sin was death. James gives a similar progression in James chapter 1 where he says temptation gives birth to sin and sin when fully grown gives birth to death. As sin came, men died because all men had sinned. See that progression? Adam sinned, Adam died. All men died because all men sinned. This is a really big concept for us to understand because Adam stood as the only man when Adam sinned, all men sinned in Adam. And to kind of help this make sense for us, if there is uh, my wife, Sarah and I, are citizens of the United States, when we had Owen, he was a citizen of the United States. When we had Adley, Adley was a citizen of the United States. Why? Because citizens of the United States so long as they're in the United States, bear citizens of the United States. And Adam and Eve as sinners bore, not perfect people, they bore sinners. All men received the curse of death because Adam stood as our representative, as the source of all men. Now a lot of people at this point, even my son Owen would object to this. At three years old now, uh, he just turned three. When the day he turned three, he put his hat on and he said, Dad, this is too small for me now. Um, and it wasn't, but he thought he was really big. And in his three-year-old brain, he would say, that's not fair. I shouldn't be judged because Adam messed up. I mean, however many years Adam lived, that's a lot further removed from me. Why am I still paying the debt of Adam's sin? I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done any atrocious sins or else other people will say, right, well, Adam walked with God in the garden. Like, we have God's word here. Adam had a different nature of God's word. He stood before me and said, hey, don't eat from that tree or you're going to die. Adam sinned in a really grievous way. I haven't rejected the verbal present word of God in the same way Adam has done. I'm not as bad as he was. But Paul, assuming these uh, these excuses, says this, looking back at verse 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose transgression was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. So two things Paul is saying here to combat those two uh, excuses. The first is, he says, sin existed even before the law came. We've talked about this thing called the law, um, which is kind of typified in the Old Testament as these rules and regulations. And we talked about the law being this measuring stick. It doesn't really do anything to us. It just measures us. And it measures us as being violators of the law, ones who broke the law. And the law didn't come 
until later in human history. But he's saying even before that law came, people were sinners. They just didn't know it. But not being convicted of sin doesn't mean you're not a sinner. Not having something standing and pointing at you doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It just means you're not aware of it. And I've seen time and time again people justify their life of sin by saying they don't feel like they're sinning. I don't feel like this is wrong. I know a woman right now involved in our church who is continuing to live um, in an adulterous relationship, and she's like, why would God let me live this way if I love him? Wouldn't God not allow me to love him? If it doesn't feel like sin, is it sin? If I feel at peace in my soul, is it really sin? And that's the problem with sin. It doesn't come with a warning label. Sin doesn't run up and be like, hey guys, I'm sin. Don't do me, don't taste me, don't touch me. No, it wants you to believe it's good. It wants you to believe it's for your benefit, for your comfort, and for your joy. It aims to deceive and to comfort you with the false pretenses of being a god. I love J.C. Ryle's line where he says, sin promises like a god but pays like a devil. An absence of conviction. Be reminded of this as you guys experience your college years. An absence of conviction does not equal an absence of sin. It's just oftentimes our heart are so dulled and our eyes so dimmed that we're unaware of it. And so Paul goes on to say that uh, we all stand dead even if we sinned differently than Adam. He says, even those whose transgression wasn't like Adam, they still stand under damnation. They still stand under God's wrath. You are born already dead to sin, a citizen of sin. And your first sin just proves it. Like, yep, this person's normal. This person is exactly who they were going to be by birth. And it confirms your reality. And this reality, Paul calls the reign of death. All of human history you look at all the good things that have happened in human history. The only consistent thing has been that people died. Good men did great things and they died. The certainty of death points out our need for something more. Out of all the, the technological advances we've had in medicine and in caring for people, not one of them has been able to stop people from dying. You look at what technology is doing today, and it's things that like blow our minds. Yeah, we can't stop people from dying. It's natural. We're ruled by it. We're enslaved to it. And so Paul is painting this heavy picture of all people sinning, of all people being dead in Adam. But then he gives a hint. He opens up the door for something wonderful. And we saw that at the end of verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. The type of the one to come. How many people, in, do we have any media arts majors on the film side in here? No. So if you want easy classes, take any media arts class online while you're here. Okay, that's cheat code number two for tonight. Go to the job fair, take media arts class online. Um, but they do these classes on film, and they, they basically tell you that in any plot... There's a prototype and an antitype. Any book, any movie, any drama. And the prototype just means the first type, the first one. And the antitype 
is something which comes afterwards, which is opposite or in fulfillment of it. It stands as the antithesis to who the type was. And to show my nerdiness here, um, in Lord of the Rings, Isildur was the prototype, right? He was the king of men who had the ring marching to Mount Doom to destroy it and rule Gondor in peace, but he couldn't. He failed, and the result was what? Destruction. But then Aragorn came as the anti-type, and he did what wasn't done before. He was the king of Gondor who secured the ring being destroyed, and rather than bringing terror, he brought peace and restoration in aiding the destruction of this. He helped bring grace where the prototype had only brought destruction. In Star Wars, it's just leveling down. Like I'm taking off onion layers of my nerdiness here, right? Anakin Skywalker is the prototype. He was the one who they thought would come and would balance the force. He would be the one. We can mix metaphors. So he would be Neo in the Matrix, okay? We're just, just no one's going to talk to me anymore. Good thing I'm already married. Um, and, and he was supposed to be this guy, but he ended up bringing only evil, disaster, and disappointment. And then there's Luke Skywalker. And you see in both of these things, there's this relationship. There's, he's this anti-type. And I know if you guys are real Star Wars nerds, you've read the book, and the books, and in one of the books it says, there's someone who's the one that's not Luke Skywalker. Is that right? Is anyone more nerdy than me? Okay, so apparently, if you want to get really in-depth on Star Wars, Luke Skywalker isn't the one. It's just the one in the movies that George Lucas has made, okay? Um, so anyway, Luke Skywalker comes, and he's the anti-type. He's the one who balances the force, who destroys the dark side. He brings peace, where again, Anakin brought death. And what Paul is going to share with us here is that there are two ways we can find our identity. There are two stories in Lord of the Rings there are two stories in Star Wars, and there's two stories of identity in the gospel. You can either find it in the prototype of Adam, who failed and doomed us all, or you can find it in the anti-type of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who would undo the curse in the same way Aragorn and Luke undid the destruction of their forefathers, and they established something completely different. This is our second point tonight, is that Christ is distinct. Paul's going to give us two contrasts of, of the distinction between Adam and Jesus. The first contrast is in Ephesians 5.15. He says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam's, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so here we see the contrast between the trespass of Adam and the grace of Jesus. Adam as the, pro, Paul's like mathematical with putting up these equations between Jesus and Adam. Adam as the prototype brought trespass. Christ as the antitype, the better Adam, brought free grace as a gift. Adam is the disease. Christ is the disinfectant. The second contrast is not between the trespass and grace, but between what the trespass brings and what grace brings, what Paul calls the result in verses 16 and 17. And again, we see this contrast language. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We've talked about justification these last few weeks, this declaration of being innocent, of being righteous. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you see the contrast there? Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brought justification. Adam brought the death. Um, Adam brought the crime. Jesus brought the life. And he brought the declaration of innocence. And in this, there's these similarities that we see between Adam and Jesus. Adam was the first man. Jesus is the true man, the God-man who has come after them. But they're very distinct in what was accomplished. In Romans 5.14, Paul uses this of Adam. He says he established a reign of death. But I love in 5.17 where he says that in Jesus we have the reign of life. You see, college is a time where you're supposed to be set free to live, Right? It's where you're supposed to study abroad, you're supposed to meet new people, explore new things, taste new foods, see new limits. But as you attempt to find your life in college, to enjoy things in a real life setting here, which we, we ought to do, culture's given us that reprieve, we should take advantage of it. We should experience different cultures. And that's good for Christianity. To be a narrow-minded, Americanized Christian is not good. To be a global-minded Christian is even better. But, but hear this, you will not... Find life in the things of Adam. You may find momentary happiness. You may get glimpses of excitement and exhilaration. You may even find seasons of deep contentment. But you will never find life outside of the second man, Jesus Christ. It won't happen. Not in friends, not in social settings, not in academics, not in relationships. You see, you might find in the reign of death the attributes of life, but you'll never find the substance of it. The thrill of the adventure, the allure of romance, the, the heat of passion, the feelings of acceptance may disguise for a moment the reign of death, but when we look back at what was talked about last week, when those hardships come, when those trials come, when that persecution and disaster comes, that reign of death will be exposed as simply death, hollow, empty, and lifeless, and they will not endure. However, to realize the life of Christ is to endure trials and sufferings, because rather than having our life hidden in the transient things of this world, it's hidden in the objective reality of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Colossians, our life has been hid inside of Christ. And you see, listen, it, it's far better to endure in weakness in the theater and plan of God than it is to fade away with the glamour on the stage of culture. It looks good to live well in the reign of death. But like everything else death touches, it comes to an end. It looks meek humble, laborious, but beautiful to live inside the life of Christ because it will carry you far past your own ability and even further past the empty promises of culture. And that's because as Dave talked about last week, the gospel isn't a pipe dream. It's not a bunch of Christians getting together at church, crossing their fingers saying, I really hope this works. 
It's not blind hope that one day we'll make it. It's not wishful thinking that our efforts will someday pay off. Paul roots your assurance, your confidence, and your happiness based exclusively on the work of Jesus Christ. Something which has happened and cannot be undone. We see him use this language in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one, man, one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting too excited to finish Paul's thoughts here. Okay? Where Adam, do you see disobedience and obedience? Paul's, again, he's lining this up. Paul's made like pros and cons lists, like all of us when we're weighing heavy decisions. Adam brought disobedience. Jesus brought perfect obedience. And because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, which Adam broke, even though it wasn't yet there, we're saved by Christ's righteousness and Christ's perfection. And nothing this world can throw at you can touch the perfection in the work of Jesus Christ. It can't. That's why I love the, the song we sing. It's based on the Heidelberg Catechism. My one comfort both in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not blind. Our confidence is not hope. Our confidence is Christ. And that carries us far past anything else. And this leads us to the final, and I think what is the most beautiful point of this passage is that Christ is all surpassing. You see, it's one thing to be distinct, but there are a lot of distinctions. I was down in California this last weekend and we were uh, traveling. We needed two cars and I was there with my family. My dad travels a lot for his work and so he's got like national rent-a-car superstar setting on his business card or something like that. And so uh, one guy takes me to go get a car and he gives me a Hyundai. And there's like red Hyundai, white Hyundai, okay, distinct from each other, different. But then my dad, he's like, no, 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 come and drive this car. And he points to a black Dodge Charger. That's a better car, okay? We had distinctions in the two Hyundais. The Charger's just better on a whole different level. Sorry if you drive a Hyundai. But the charger's better. And so when we face Adam and we face Jesus, it's not merely an option between two things which are equal. The death we had in Adam is not equal to the life we have in Jesus. It's not two things which are equal in weight, but just different in result. You see, life in Christ is a different, re different result, but it's different because it's different in quality. It's entirely different and wholly wonderful. The way in which we're reconciled to Christ is far greater than the way in which we were dead in Adam. It's better than we could have ever imagined. And here's the thing as believers, it only gets more clear and more better as we grow in grace. Look at the language Paul uses here. Just, just pay attention to these comparative um, words, these surpassing words. Romans 5, <clears throat> 10 and 11. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, even greater, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, 15. 
the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded, not sufficient, not meeting, abounded for many in excess Romans 5:16 the next verse and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass Adam's one sin death reigned through that one man much or excuse me I'm in 17 let me get back to where I am for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam sold us down the river with one sin. Christ inherited a people with many sins. And he rendered it moot. Christ is greater than Adam. The next verse, verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, this language is not language of equality. It's not, this is bad, this is better. It's, this is bad, and this is exponentially better. This is of surpassing value, a different quality, another level of living. You see, Jesus is not just another Adam. He is the better Adam. He's the greater Savior, an object of greater worth who produces salvation to the uttermost. You see, look at how Paul concludes this passage 20 and 21, now the law came to increase the trespass, right? The measuring stick shows us of our trespasses. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where there was much sin, there is much more grace where there was much death. Let me give you a hint. How many degrees of death are there? One, okay? You passed Anthropology 101. There's one kind of death. And where that death reigned, there's much more life. And not simply life, eternal life. What Jesus calls in John, life abundantly. You see, Jesus has not just delivered us from death into a life. He's delivered us from death into his life. The life of perfection. The life of joy. The life of satisfaction. This is the hope and confidence for the Christian life. The power of death and Adam are not comparable to the power of life in Christ. We gain more in Christ than we ever lost in death. And there will be more saints in heaven than we ever thought possible in this life because the power of Jesus Christ assures that many will believe in him through faith. Many will come to know Jesus because his sacrifice isn't static. It isn't still, but it's active, it's effective, and it's powerful. And it has made a living of killing unbelief across cultures, languages, and political systems throughout the ages. And it will continue to grow, and it will continue to multiply, despite what stress we face on this earth. You see, what Paul is saying here, is while Christians may be a minority in moments throughout history, 
He's holding up the reminder that we will not be a minority in the world to come. God has promised his people to be as numerous as the sands on the sea and the stars in the sky. And Jesus came not to proclaim a village. He came to proclaim a kingdom. And God's people will be established, will be, certainly will be. It is assured to be established in power because, not because we're capable to believe, but because the power of the cross has given us the ability to believe and be saved for the righteous will live by faith because Christ's death accomplishes something. It does things in our life. You see, the gospel's not a trinket to be weighed. It's a treasure to be seized by faith through grace, assured by the work of Jesus Christ. For those of you in here tonight who are viewing this gospel, it's not you who's weighing the gospel, it's the gospel that's weighing you. And if you stand in Adam and you see the things of this world as your hope, as your pleasure, as your joy, you stand in God's wrath. You stand in Adam's condemnation. You stand in Adam's line. And I pray that your eyes would be opened. I pray that the law will strike your heart and show you your need for a Savior so that you can receive what can only be received by faith through grace. Because you can't do it on your own. You can't outwork Adam. The song was saying, I worked my finger down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus delivered you. And for those of you who have been delivered and already captured by the grace of Christ, I pray that you will never fail to see your need of Jesus Christ. That we will never live according to Adam because we realize that we've been purchased in Christ and we realize the powerful, surpassing value of the gospel. You see, to be a Christian who lives rightly, serves rightly, and loves rightly, we must be able to see God's gift rightly. Because the value we see in that free gift of the gospel doesn't just change how we worship that object. It changes how we live in every aspect of our life. And it's only in that realization that you gain life in the future, but you also learn how to live in the present. That's our our theme, is learning to live in Romans. What does it mean to live? It means to see the gospel rightly. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 16. You see the change that happens in those who view the gospel well. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded, you hear his Romans language here, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You want to be a Christian purposed to live in this world? You must first realize the value of the gospel and the assurance that gives you in every season of your life. May we live according to Christ, for praise be to God, Adam has passed and Jesus has come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news. We thank you... um, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that now is the day of salvation. We pray that that 
resonates in our hearts so that we may see with great assurance and hope that we have been reconciled not by blind hope but by the person and work of Jesus Christ because we needed it, but more than just meeting our need, you've given us more than we ever could have imagined in the gospel. We pray that we will labor and live because of what Paul calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, that it will put everything else in perspective and it will push us to live beyond our comfort zones, to love beyond our social circles, and to serve beyond our selfishness. Lord, we thank you that all of that happens not when we strain to do those things, but when we're free to examine the gospel and we're transformed by the beauty of the free gift of salvation. Amen.